Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is our fifth podcast for solution-focused hypnotherapists. I'm Cathy Eland. And I'm Trevor Eddles, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. This time we thought we'd look at depression. Yes, sadly, depression is the most common mental health problem worldwide, and that's followed by anxiety, schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. You know, it's estimated that around 2 million people in the UK live with some form of depression. What people call depression ranges from a bad or low mood or feelings of sadness or miserableness down to a debilitating mental state where a person lacks motivation and energy. This type might last for up to a fortnight. The last type can last for a long period of time and have no discernible cause. Depression is classified as a mood disorder. Your mood is your overall emotional state, the way you feel over a period of time. And while you're in that mood, you can experience a range of emotions. Depression doesn't come in a single recognisable form. There are many types and subtypes of depressive disorder. These include psychotic major depression, melancholic depression, dysthymia, which is a persistent depressive disorder, postpartum, and seasonal affective disorder. Okay, so the DSM-5 guide for depression suggests that an individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of those symptoms should be either depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. Anyway, here's the list for you. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. A slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. Fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Recurrent thoughts of death. Recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. It is interesting to note that the DSM scale so implies that a person may not necessarily be depressed or miserable. They may just have lost interest in the thing they used to be interested in or should be interested in. To be described as clinically depressed, a person will be suffering from a major depressive disorder. Interestingly, evidence shows that depression and sleep are linked, so the systems controlling sleep can be disrupted by depression. While there's no gene for depression, there are genetic factors involved, and depression does seem to occur in families. True. Uh, Let's talk a little about the brain. It weighs about three pounds and comprises neurons, glial cells and cerebrospinal fluid. Those neurons can transmit messages or impulses at speeds of 120 meters per second. And yet, neurons don't actually touch each other. The gaps between neurons are called synapses. 
The neurotransmitters, these small amounts of chemicals, carry the message across the gap between neurons. The sending neuron releases a neurotransmitter, this chemical, which passes across the gap, and receptors on the next neuron pick up the neurotransmitter and pass on the signal. Anatomy alert. Neurons. Well, these are cheeky, friendly, chatty little cells. They have a body. Let's call it the life support. They have axons. These parts talk. And dendrites. They listen to the gossip. And they certainly do not like to touch each other, as Trevor's just said. Instead, they do it in the form of tiny air kisses or a game of, I'm not touching you. So they use neurotransmitters instead. And if you think about the size of the gap we're describing, it's about 20 nanometers. Now compare that to the width of a hair, which is between 80 and 100,000 nanometers. It's a tiny gap. And you may think that having this gap or synapse slows down sending messages around the brain, which is true. However, the big advantage is that it allows a single neuron to connect to hundreds of other neurons and pass on signals to them. That's like a seriously popular Facebook post or Instagram reel. And a single neuron can receive signals from hundreds of other neurons. Synapses allow neural connections to change. It makes them flexible as the brain learns and adapts, making it very versatile. It is this adaption that has been the key to our survival and certainly dictates the quality of our, of our lives in some ways. In neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, glutamate, etc. can do more than simply pass on a signal. Some are excitatory, which means that they create new signals or amplify existing signals. It's like turning the volume up. Other neurotransmitters are inhibitory, which means they can reduce the activity in the neuron, like turning down the volume. They can cut off or cancel a signal. So let's go back to our simple model of synapses. A neurotransmitter is released from one nerve and causes the second nerve to send a signal. If the neurotransmitter were to stay at the receptor site, then it would cause another signal to be sent. Therefore, some way is needed to remove a neurotransmitter once it's done its job. Sometimes it is reabsorbed by the neuron to be used again. Whatever happens, it can't be left. It's like the brain gets out the diton and hoovers it back into the axon. The other thing to say about the brain is that certain discrete areas are visible, like the hippocampus and the thalamus. Originally, they were thought to have a specific function, but modern thinking is that they tend to have multiple functions and they're connected to lots of other parts of the brain in complex networks. The most common treatment for depression these days is the use of antidepressants. Uh, they were discovered by accident in the 1940s and 50s. They were originally medications for other things that seemed to make patients happier. It was thought that they affected monoamine neurotransmitters such as serotonin, dopamine and noradrenaline. The hypothesis was that they made the neurotransmitter last longer in the synapse before being removed so it continued to send a signal. In effect, more serotonin became available and depressed people became happier. 
Yeah, the original antidepressant medications were monoamine oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs. Then came tricyclic antidepressants, TCAs, for example, amitriptyline. And lastly came selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, for example, Prozac. There are a whole variety of reasons why that hypothesis has fallen out of favour in recent years. Firstly, SSRIs take a long time to work, around two weeks to a month. Theoretically, they should work quickly, although we may like to consider whether that's more to do with what the doctor tells his or her patient. And certainly, their side effects kick in quickly. Interesting, amitriptyline, a tricyclic amine, is the most effective drug against depression. However, Prozac, an SSRI, is the most commonly used because it has fewer or less side effects. Yeah. Uh, Secondly, in 2018, it was discovered that there are two serotonin networks in the brain which have opposing effects on mood. Activating one system seems to boost signs of a good mood and motivation. Activating the other system makes mice, and remember it's always mice, appear more nervous, anxious and depressed. So assuming that people have the same systems that are found in mice, that would fit in with the evidence of some people having bad reactions to antidepressants. It was stimulating the wrong serotonin network. How interesting. And then there's the fact that some very effective antidepressants don't affect monoamine transmitter levels and some enhance serotonin uptake and they are equally effective. Yeah, reducing people's serotonin levels doesn't make them depressed either. This is done by cutting down on the amount of tryptophan that people have and tryptophan is a chemical that the brain can make into serotonin. SSRIs don't work the same on everybody. In fact, that they only work on about half of the people who take them. So, if it's not serotonin levels that's affecting happiness and depression, what is it? Good question, Trevor. One theory is that depressed people have a diminished level of neuroplasticity and that makes it so hard for them to adapt and change. They effectively become locked into how they feel at that time. What can be seen in the brain scans is impaired functioning, reduced neuroplasticity and even shrinkage in multiple brain areas. One area, this happens, is in the hippocampus, which explains why depression is often linked with impaired memory. It also explains why it's hard to cope when you can't learn any new information. The prefrontal cortex is also affected in the same way leading to a loss of higher cognitive functions. And the anterior cingulate is affected. It's an area that normally regulates mood. The striatum is affected. And this part of the brain is involved in human social behavior. And the ventral tegmental area is affected. This is an area that's part of the reward pathway, so associated with pleasure. So why do antidepressants work at all? Could it be that they affect the glutamate, the most common neurotransmitter? It's an excitatory transmitter. The theory is they help to boost neuroplasticity. Going back to the serotonin, remember that it's a neuromodulator as well as a neurotransmitter, which means that it affects other neurons. In this case, 
serotonin makes other neurons more sensitive to yet other neurotransmitters. And that's why drugs affecting serotonin may work. That's really interesting. Also, ketamine works very quickly as an antidepressant. It's thought that ketamine affects glutamate receptors and so increases neuroplasticity. Mm, wow. Although we've been talking about a decrease in neuroplasticity and brain regions becoming less active during depression, there are some brain regions that seem to become overactive. These include the amygdala, the insular cortex and the orbitofrontal cortex. An overactive amygdala could lead to more negative feelings and emotions. The insular cortex processes feelings of disgust and has a role in our feelings of self-worth. And the orbitofrontal cortex helps people resist urges. Perhaps its overreaction leads to doing nothing. Right. Other areas around depression are that stress may overexcite some neurons and actually cause them to die. And this is called excitotoxicity. Yeah, nutritional neuroscience found that a higher consumption of vegetables may cut the odds of developing depression by 62%. Wow. A study of nearly 300,000 Canadians found that greater fruit and vegetable consumption was associated with lower risk of depression, psychological distress, mood and anxiety disorders, and also poor perceived mental health. The researchers suggested that eating antioxidant-rich plant foods may dampen the detrimental effects of oxidative stress in mental health. Yeah. A study by Sanchez Villagas et al. in 2009 compared a Mediterranean diet with other diets. They found that people who ate little meat were less likely to experience depression than those who ate more meat. Following the same people for a further six years and published in 2015, the study found that people who ate mainly plant sources had a 26% reduction in the risk of depression. And we spoke last time about suggested links between the microbiome in the gut and depression. Yes, inflammation seems to be an issue too. Hapakovsky et al. in 2015 found that markers of inflammation are elevated in people who suffer from depression compared to non-depressed people. Also, indicators of inflammation can predict the severity of depressive symptoms. In addition, a study examining identical twins found that the twin who had a higher CRP concentration, C-reactive protein, which is produced in the liver, is a blood test marker for inflammation in the body, was more likely to develop depression five years later. Yeah, with patients who don't respond to antidepressants, Studies have shown that they tend to have elevated inflammatory factors compared to the responsive ones. That was O'Brien et al. 2007, because they found that increased levels of an inflammation molecule prior to treatment predicted poor response to antidepressants. I guess it really shows how everything is linked in different ways. Anyway, how can hypnotherapy help with depression? Well, we already know that as far as the primitive brain goes, the best way to keep someone safe is to get them to do the same thing they did yesterday. So delivering a large dose of miserableness will do just that. Changing blood chemistry to achieve such a state is genius. 
but not at all helpful. It's a bubble of glum. Michael Yapko sees hypnosis as a most effective way to address the complicated nature of depression. He writes, there are six clinical reasons for using hypnosis in treating depression. Number one, it amplifies subjective experiences. It interrupts systematic patterns. It facilitates experimental learning. It also helps to bridge and contextualize responses, provides different and more flexible models of inner reality. And finally, it helps to focus the attention. So in summary, hypnosis together with our arsenal of solution-focused questions helps neurons form new connections and builds a more positive brain. Focusing on the positive adds to the narrow world perspective, broadening the client's viewpoint, adding colour and texture. Talking about and imagining a positive future causes neurons to wire together that way. The miracle question allows them to climb the metaphorical mountain to the top as the solution-focused hypnotherapist, as the sidekick or navigator, helping the client to see new pathways and routes. The four Ps can be very beneficial in that way. It helps the brain to rewire. Remember, positive thoughts, positive actions, positive interactions, and also positive purpose. Yeah, not forgetting, we are assisting clients to get out of their primitive brain into their intellectual brain by clearing out the stress in the bucket using trance. And all our sessions induce a relaxation response. Our language patterns and scripts talk about building confidence, empowerment, and we use metaphors. Therefore, we are adjusting and reworking our clients' typical psychological processes. In other words, solution-focused hypnotherapy can pierce the bubble and get things moving. Hooray. Okay, well, that's about it for this podcast. I hope you found it useful, and I hope you're up to date with the latest ideas on depression. So it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Edwards. See you next time. Bye. Bye.